Welcome, everyone, to the 101st episode of the Book and Film Globe podcast. I am your host, Neil Pollock, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, not to mention the greatest living American writer. You can find our website at www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and much more. We have an interesting show for you this week. We're going to talk about the decision by the Cannes Film Festival to not include the latest Woody Allen movie, Coup de Chance, in this year's lineup, which is a kind of a strange decision since uh, Allen made the movie in France and included a cast of famous French actors. No American actors, as far as I can tell, in the film. We're also going to talk about Bo is Afraid, a very phantasmagoric and pretentious art film from Ari Aster, the guy who directed Midsummer and Hereditary. That is in theaters now. But first, we're going to talk to Sharon Vane, our frequent contributor, about a growing movement among conservative legislators in the United States to defund public libraries, which is, to my mind, as bad an idea as defunding the police. Sharon will be right back to talk with me after this brand new musical interlude. Here we are again, another week, another censorship story. I guess this isn't even really a a censorship story as much as, I mean, it's kind of the politics have kind of gone beyond censorship at this point. There is now a movement among conservative legislators at various governmental levels to defund public libraries entirely, get rid of public libraries or, or replace them with privately funded libraries. I mean, I'm in favor of privately funded libraries, but uh, public libraries are an innate good and one of the best things about uh, about America in general is the public libraries. And uh, Sharon Vane, our frequent contributor and frequent commentator on uh, issues involving governmental censorship of literature, wrote about it this week, and she's here to talk to me about it. Hello, Sharon. Hello, Neil. Yes, I would agree with you wholeheartedly that public libraries are among one of the greater common goods we have. And it's scary how quickly we see how they're at risk. Yeah, you know, and you and I live in Austin, Texas, which has one of the best public library systems in the country, if not the best. I mean, it's just incredibly, it's one of the best things about living in Austin is the fact that you can dial up a book pretty much at any time and it'll be available to you, uh, you know, at a variety of locations. And I love the library system here. And while the Austin public library system is under no threat of being defunded, there are library systems in Texas that, that are facing the ax. Tell us a little bit about what's going on. Yeah. Well, we are the town of Llano, which is about an hour and a half West of here in Austin really just captured a bunch of national attention because the county commissioners called an emergency meeting last week to talk about uh, defunding their three libraries in Llano County. They were going to defund all of them and fire the staff. And this happened to follow a court case that arose out of some library books that some people complained about and were taken off the shelves and then librarians put them back on the shelves. There was a federal case that was brought and the judge said, you can't take away books because you don't like what's in them. You need to put them back on the shelves. And then two weeks later, lo and behold, 
we're going to have this big meeting to close down the library. And, you know, it brought a ton of library supporters out, which was the positive news. Um, but it's interesting how quickly we go from, oh, we're just trying to protect children to we're going to absolutely eliminate all access for everyone to everything that public libraries do when we're talking about censorship. Right. Because I feel like a year ago or 18 months ago when we were talking about this, there were some people who were feeling somewhat squidgy about genderqueer and about Lawn Boy by Jonathan Evison. You know, that's basically it was like there were just a few books in addition to the usual uh, books that people try to ban or censor that were were creating some controversy. And suddenly, like it's it's erupted into this insane movement to get rid of public libraries. And it's like, and I just, I just don't understand it. it, it it's, it's like uh, people saying we should abolish Medicare, but, right. but, but, but Medicare at least is a more sort of modern creation of, of the, of the liberal welfare state. Whereas public libraries, I mean, yeah, you know, this, we're talking hundreds of years of history and tradition that transcends ideology. And they also provide so many services. You know, we're not just talking about books here. Public libraries have evolved over the past, you know, several decades. That's where, you know, people go to get free internet access, job search help, voter registration, passport help. There are so many services. I mean, story times, all kinds of programming for kids of all. all voting. Kinds. Right. Exactly. Voting. Um, just, you know, basic human decency is, is there at the library. And I think that's why this has struck such a chord with folks who watch this stuff, because the idea that, you know, may, you know, maybe reasonable people could disagree about a book, but the idea that we're just going to take our ball and go home and nobody gets to go to the library at all, clearly is a step where we've just, we've gone too far. And Atlanta's not the only place this is happening. In Missouri, there was a similar fight over LGBTQ books and new laws that had been passed in that state. And there was pushback from the ACLU, very similar to what happened in Lano. And so Republicans in that state house took out all the funding for all 160 public libra library districts from the state budget. Um, a similar thing is happening in Texas. There's a Republican proposal to defund libraries that host drag story times, which has passed one chamber and moved on to the other. So we're just seeing this happening in a lot more places. So wait, so, so you're telling me that Missouri has, has defunded its public libraries or has, was the bill not signed? We're waiting to see what happens. So it's passed one chamber. It's passed uh -huh. the, the House in Missouri. It needs to be uh, passed in the Senate. Um, and, you know, then we'll, we'll see what happens. But the fact that this is a, what's considered acceptable or appropriate response uh, in terms of, you know, we want to protect the kids so much, we're not going to let them go to the library at all, um, just feels... Uh, like a dramatic overreach. You know, and well, and it also like, it feels like Republicans are shooting themselves in the foot here because libraries also can carry conservative materials. Like you can, they can carry books about 
Christian fundamentalism or the glories of capitalism or, you know, whatever, you know, or like patriotism or some of the buzzwords where, you know, that Republicans use, you know, there, these are not, you know, left wing institutions at their essence. You know, these are civic institutions that uh, serve everyone, no matter what your politics, no matter what your interests, right? Well, right. And there's, you know, the, the idea that, you know, six-year-olds are going to the library by themselves, A, is unlikely, and B, wander. a lot of the titles at issue in Lano or the ones that, you know, the people who supported closing the library were quoting from were, you know, young adult titles that wouldn't have been shelved in the kids' section anyway. Um, there are so many steps that could be taken um, at the family level before we get to closing libraries. Um, you know, I just, I think it's so important when we, we talk about, you know, what we need to do to fight censorship. I, I get this question a lot because I cover it. And I think there, it's tempting to kind of do the, I read banned books or, oh, I bought this banned books. But these kinds of situations are where the energy really needs to go fighting at uh, the local level where people are trying to close libraries, people are trying to pass laws. Uh, what we saw in Lano was there was a huge outpouring of support. Authors came from Austin, library supporters from all over, and ultimately the commissioner said, we're not gonna close the library for now. So who knows if they had already made that decision before there was this big sort of outpouring of support. But well, let me, ask, let me ask you this. Was the outpouring of support, did it cross ideological lines? Because that to me is the most is important, right? I don't like this idea that we are fighting over whether or not libraries are good based on who we voted for, you know, or what party we belong to. You know, I, I don't... I feel like there are some things that should transcend partisan politics. Well, I agree, but unfortunately what we're seeing in so many of these fights and the library uh, closures and defundings and the library attacks that we've also written about on occasion, um, unfortunately the vast majority of attacks on these public institutions are coming from conservative parents, conservative uh, judges, conservative lawmakers, and, you know, more progressive, uh, you know, speakers in favor of intellectual freedom, you know, we, we haven't, that's where we see the cut is, you know, there could be conservatives who say, we need a library, but they're not speaking up. Um, they're going along with, we have to protect the children, and therefore we have to close the entire library over a dispute about genderqueer. It's not going, and the thing is, is it's not going to protect the children from anything because the children can find out whatever they need to know on YouTube or TikTok or whatever. And if the parents themselves are, are even remotely lax. And I, I, I don't even know if it's a, pro I don't know. I don't understand what they think this is going to accomplish other than dim diminishing the public square and making everyone stupider. I just, I think we have, I mean, absolutely catapulted down that slippery slope into this place where part of your bona fides as a conservative is, 
you've got to be on the side of quote unquote protecting children, which to them equates, we can't read about anything to do with LGBTQ people. We're, you know, only going to read books that you would have read in like 1945. Um, and if you are open at all to any scenario in which um, these books are available in school libraries, public libraries, no matter how many restrictions are on them, then you're not a real conservative and you, you're a groomer, you're a pedophile. The language gets so charged. It can't just be, you know, that you want kids to be able to read a happy book about two dads, like taking their kid to kindergarten. No, you're a pedophile and a groomer. So that, that discourse has become so elevated and charged. People just lose sight of what's at stake here. I feel like the discourse has become elevated and charged on both sides. However, only one side is saying we must defund libraries. And that's where, <laughs> to say the least, that's where I draw the line. You know, I've, I've, I've yeah, spent a I, there, there's, like you, there, there's no way to me that you can argue effectively why we would close public libraries. It just, I feel like universally people should agree that is a bad thing for society. Yeah. I mean, regardless, you know, whether you're a a communist or a Nazi, you know, regardless, that is just, this is something that uh, everyone should share as part of the uh, common square and a public square. And I know we're in agreement on this. So we're not, at this point, we're just preaching to each other as the choir, but I'm hoping that someone can listen to this and, you know, look into it a little bit more, get charged up. And if these issues happen in their own communities to speak out and, and act, or at least uh, be a warm body, be a warm body in the crowd. Absolutely. 100%. I could not agree more. The time for just looking at these stories and saying, wow, that's kind of nuts is over. The time to speak up, to write letters, to appear at your school board, to go to these hearings. That time is now. Yeah, because we don't want to wake up one day and have no libraries. Exactly. Uh, yeah, because th- then then you're just having to read whatever books you've got left in your house. And I've read most of those already. That's right. Or go to the internet and who knows what you're going to find there, right? Uh, lots, lots, of, uh, lots of videos of cats. Anyway, <laughs> Sharon, uh, thank you so much. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. News broke in the last week that Woody Allen's 50th film, Coup de Chance, uh, has been uh, disallowed, not not submitted, not it will not be screened at the Cannes Film Festival, which uh, has created a bit of controversy, and we covered it this week. Michael Washburn wrote a piece for us. Hello, Michael. Hi, Neil. So this is surprising to me, I have to admit, because Woody Allen is revered not so much in his home country anymore, by some people maybe, but in France, he's considered a, a great cultural hero. And Coup de Chance is a French set movie filmed in France with an entirely French cast. And all reports are that it's actually one of his best movies in years. And yet the Cannes Film Festival has chickened out of including it. It just seems like a natural fit. Well, I find the decision rather appalling. Uh, I think that Woody Allen 
has made a lot of wonderful movies in the course of his long career and some that I don't respect quite as much. And we can talk about that a bit later if you like. And when I heard that the decision was made not to screen Coup de Chance, I just thought, what is the world coming to? This guy is a wonderful, iconic director. He's made this movie set in France. How could you dredge up a sexual molestation case that's been going on for many, many years, but in which he's never been convicted and use that as a pretext or some unspecified content in the film as an excuse not to show the movie. I, I cannot fathom that. They use content in the movie as a pretext for it. I, I, I mean, I, I figured it would have had something to do with the quote unquote case. That isn't really a case um, that is just more just a kind of a, at this point, just kind of a, a culture war bailiwick. Um, did they talk about content in the film as being the reason they're not showing it? No, you see, the rationale was so vague that it wasn't really explained at all whether there was anything in the film itself that audiences would object to. The organizer simply said, well, this would be upsetting to too many people and it would generate problems not only as far as the screening of this film, but other films that we have on the schedule for cons, so we're not going to show it. And he did not specifically identify anything in Coup de Chance, but he left open the possibility that the film contains content that might upset people. I haven't seen the film, and again, the explanation was so vague, I'm trying to extrapolate from an extremely kind of abstruse rationalization. It seems kind of unlikely that a Woody Allen film would contain content that was very upsetting to people. I mean, there was one scene in, I believe, uh, Husbands and Wives, where there's a there's a wife getting dragged out of a party uh, screaming by a husband. Or maybe that was Crimes and Misdemeanors. I don't remember which one it was. You know, there, occasionally there's something in there that might makes people a little uncomfortable. You know, maybe the older man and younger woman romances occasionally. But, I mean, it's not like Woody Allen is – you know, an incredibly controversial filmmaker. Most of his movies are, are, are quite light, you know? Well, you've hit on something there. The problem that I have with some of the movies is that they're a little bit too mainstream. So take another power set movie, Midnight in Paris, where Owen Wilson is this writer and he's on vacation in Paris and he has these encounters where he magically segues into this alternate reality where Hemingway and Fitzgerald and T.S. Eliot are still alive and he can converse with them. And I thought that movie was such a superficial gloss and it presented this kind of semi-educated person's take on these very complex and interesting and problematic writers. So, Well, if you read, if, but if you read Woody Allen's autobiography, he even talks about how he's just semi-educated. I mean, he barely even went to college. You know, he's not a he, he kind of looks like an intellectual and he yes, he makes movies set in France or whatever, but he's not actually an intellectual. I mean, yeah, Midnight in Paris isn't great, but it's just kind of a trifle. But I guess the, the, the point is, is like what in his movies could possibly be bannable? I mean, he doesn't present a lot of controversial ideas. No, he really doesn't. And his movies are very crowd pleasing and. As I said, if anything, I think some of them are a little bit too tame and too mainstream and too unwilling to take a gamble. And that's one aspect of some of his films that I find a little disappointing, although I am a fan and I will defend the man and I will defend artistic freedom in the face of unproven allegations. And I wish that the organizers of Khan saw things the same way, but obviously they don't. So the audiences who were all revved up to see this movie are going to have to wait and we'll see when and where it gets picked up.
Well, yeah, I'm just kind of curious, like, where are we going to see this movie at all, right? Like, I mean, when was the last time Midnight in Paris screened in, in the U.S., for sure, but that was in 2011. There was a sort of a, a period uh, with these uh, sexual uh, abuse allegations where sort of they were dormant, right? Like, they, they came out, he was exonerated, and then the Pharaoh family kind of um, ramped up the heat again you know, within, within the last decade. So, But it's not like... You know, he has completely lost his touch. Um, he still makes movies that are have uh, some some popular appeal and then actually get uh, his performances, uh, his actors, uh, they get nominated for major awards. So it's just it's just bizarre to me, you know, that I mean, you know, I share your opinion about the uh, the Dylan Farrow allegations like I, I feel like. He's been exonerated multiple times by numerous courts and by he's been, it's been invest nothing's been more investigated than this. And he's always found not guilty. And yet there's this idea in the public eye, uh, eye that he is some sort of, you know, sexual predator and child molester. And, you know, you wrote, you wrote about this, uh, this issue and we posted it up on our Facebook page. And there are people who are still like, I'll never see one of these movies. He married his daughter, you know? <laughs> And he didn't. He didn't marry his daughter. He no, married his. Marry his daughter. He married Mia Farrow's adopted daughter. You know. I mean. You know. It's a strange story. <laughs> but it's not. He didn't do anything wrong. That is not the origin story of most marriages that I've heard of. But no, no. It, it does not constitute a moral failing or, or transgression at all. No, it's just it's just kind of an odd story, and you know, and they have stayed married. And I read his autobiography, apropos of nothing, and that I, you know, at least from his telling, he is the most devoted husband who has ever existed on the planet. You know, he he, you know, he he, he they have a family, they have their own children. I don't know. It's just a, it's such a strange thing. And you know, again, I don't want to get too granular into the um, the abuse case. I just find it bizarre that. Uh, someone who was at one time in our lives was revered as, you know, not only like one of the funniest Americans to ever live, but also one of our greatest filmmakers is now like someone who you, you can't even mention his name without people uh, coiling away in horror. It's bizarre. You use the term bizarre and I think it's apt and not only given Alan's stature and the fact that he's made many wonderful movies and he has millions of fans around the world, but also in the context of France, because this is a country that used to be synonymous with creative daring. I used to work for an editor who was interested in France, and one of his observations about the French national character was that people stood by what they believed. They would defend a position no matter what the consequences for their career, their reputation, their livelihood, their relationships. When they were right, they were right. And I think this it's disappointing. It's disappointing to see this kind of uh, opinion being expressed by uh, the major French film festival. I have to say, I'm, I, I'm surprised. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes. Well, you know, there's this element of nationalism and pride. And part of that is a willingness to take an unpopular position and expose oneself to ridicule and rejection. And we, we are seeing the opposite tendency. We are seeing lack of moral courage on the part of the festival's organizers. And it really is sad and tragic. Also, like, if they did have the guts to air that film, 
talk about. I mean, I don't think it would be bad publicity. I, I think I think Cannes would get so much publicity beyond just the film press, which it always gets. But I think it would be great for the festival, personally. It would be wonderful for the festival, and it would encourage a lot of aspiring directors and actors and screenwriters, and it really would have a revitalizing effect. But now we're not going to see that. So it makes me. I haven't seen. I haven't seen a Woody Allen movie. I believe since uh, Midnight in Paris and Blue Jasmine. I would be in, and Match Point, which was around the same era. I would be inclined to see this at all costs at this point. It's the the the, the, the uh, film that was too controversial to Eric Cans, and I'm going to endeavor. Uh, we have a, a bookstore and a screening room in uh, New Jersey. We're gonna we're gonna host a screening of Coup de Chance somehow. Somehow we're going to get a hold of that, of a print, and we're going to show it to whoever wants to show up. Maybe you can come introduce it. I would love to present the film. That would be an honor. All right. Well, we're going to make it happen. Uh, this is the kind of thing that Book and Film Globe uh, can do. We have the technology, and uh, Coup de Chance will be airing at the Book House in Milburn, New Jersey, sometime within the next 18 months. Stay tuned. Michael, thank you so much for, for talking to me today. Great to talk to you, Neil. Take care. For what your daddy passed down to you. But I wanted a child. The greatest gift of my life. I'm visiting my mother tomorrow. Hi, Carrot. It's Mom. I'm just calling to say that I'm so, so, so excited to see you tomorrow. You're my angel and I love you. Okay, I love you. Okay, bye, sweetie. I love you. Are you at the airport? I'm on my way. I just... It's not safe, is it? What do you think I should do? I'm sure you'll do the right thing, sweetheart. Welcome back. Our movie of the week is Bo is Afraid, a kind of phantasmagorical horror comedy with mommy issues from director Ari Aster, who is more well-known for Midsummer and Hereditary, which kind of went beyond being cult classics and kind of became part of the sort of, what do they call it, elevated horror canon. Uh, very uh, popular and b- beloved uh, and very strange modern movies. And, uh, well... Bo is Afraid is certainly strange. I don't think it's going to be popular or much beloved. Stephen Garrett is here to discuss Bo is Afraid. <laughs> Hello. Bo is strange. What Bo's a strange movie. What a strange yeah. movie. It's like, it is like the ultimate uh, theater kid, Jewish theater kid with mommy issues movie. <laughs> right? Do you know... Uh, God bless him for making movies like this. This is a swing and a miss as far as I'm concerned. I loved, uh, I loved Midsummer, and I liked Hereditary just fine, not as much as other people who consider it a masterpiece. But this, for me, is the weakest of the three. And um, it, it's, it's, an, it's such an original vision. I really feel like I've never seen anything like this before. And yet it just doesn't gel. Now, it also runs three hours long, which might be part of it. Well, you know, it's like, it's like Ari Aster's id just on the screen. You know, basically, <laughs> that's, and that's the only way I can think of it. I mean, to the point where, like, there's a giant penis monster. I, I'm gonna give yes. the re- I'm gonna give away the big creature reveal. There's a giant spoiler alert. 
spoiler alert, there's a penis monster. You know, it's kind of a, which, you know, some of it has kind of like early David Lynch, not even early David Lynch vibes, just David Lynch vibe, vibes in general uh, with just sort of the weird disjointed narrative and the, you know, how you're never quite sure if something is like it's just a drug hallucination, which is highly possible. Or, or you know, that it's, if it's actually happening or if it's a dream or if it's a metaphor. But it's all uh, very bizarre and extremely histrionic. Uh, Joaquin Phoenix plays Bo, who is a guy who lives in a really nasty version of New York in a really bad apartment. <laughs> right? I'd Basically. say a nasty part of Queens. It's definitely not Queens. Know, that's like Lower East Side circa 1980. It doesn't look like Queens. Uh, and it, it, is, it, is, it is nasty and, and dense and, you know, kind of packed with like odd and funny references. Um, basically, he, uh, he's supposed to go home and visit his mother, uh, played, played by a couple of different actresses. That's another one of the things that this movie does, but uh, played in the modern version by Patty Lupone. And she's a very wealthy business magnet of some sort. Basically, his, his trip to go home and see his mother, let's say, runs into some roadblocks. <laughs> yeah, to put it mildly. Imagine and if he gets run into, a car runs into him. That's yeah, he gets stabbed by a crazy naked man. It's kind of like you know, after hours, Martin Scorsese's after hours, yeah. where where the uh, protagonist is just this hapless dunce who like keeps having things happen to him and, and for, for, uh, spirals further and further down uh, the rat hole. But it doesn't have that. You know, after hours was fun because it also had kind of a gritty sense of you know street sense and and and, and realism. And this is this is a just one long Freudian metaphor for a you know a man's lifelong psychological damage that his mother uh, imposed upon him when he was young. Yeah, and I mean, and not to not to get too spoilery too, but I just to clarify the the world. It, it's first of all such a complete uh, fantasy of reality, um, a neurotic fantasy of reality. Certainly not a good fantasy. Um, but the, the whole thing, there's no, there's no attempt to be realistic in this movie and his neighborhood feels like a projection of his own id. And you, you noticed how, you know, his, his mother, it is gradually revealed to be this sort of business magnet who ran a conglomerate that did many things, including building, uh, buildings where, uh, that house people, including her son, like her son is in one of the housing developments. Right. Did you catch that? And I did like, catch that at the end. Yeah, yeah. Every everything he visits is somehow related to his mother's business. So one has to wonder if he's not just having a bathtub hallucination or something the whole right, time. Right. The company that makes microwaves that are in his uh, house, the microwave he uses, is the same company that his mother runs. So microwaves you really do get a sense. And the microwavable food that he eats. Uh, that's right. Yes. So basically. It's his mom is the personification of the massive capitalistic conglomerates that run every aspect of our lives, which I think is kind of a funny, witty, <laughs> dread-inducing kind of aspect. Yeah, but then why does he live in a shitty apartment? Who is he? Uh, well, there are what, does he do? what does he do? What does he do with his time? That's exactly right. And what fundamentally, aside from all the cliches about you know, overbearing mothers, uh, overbearing Jewish mothers and their sons, like, uh, 
is this movie bringing to us? I feel like we have to project a lot of what actually happened between them uh, because there's a lot of just presumption of, yes, well, of course, this is a fraught relationship. And so just go with that. I want to create a big penis monster and do a lot of other phantasmagorical things. Yeah, but, you know, the fraught, the fraught relationship between Jewish men and their mothers has been done in the works of Philip Roth and the works of Larry David <laughs> and uh. the, the works of Woody Allen and the works of many other Jewish writers and filmmakers. So I don't actually feel like Bo is Afraid is really treading a lot of new ground, at least not to, as someone, as a Jewish man uh, who is very close to his mother, who is now deceased, you know, I should have found this movie extremely relatable. <laughs> you, know what I, you, know, you know what I mean? But, um, but I didn't really. I, mean, I, I, not, not only I found it not relatable. I, I found it alienatingly um, overwrought and pretentious, which isn't to say that he didn't have some arresting images and some really good performances. I, mean, I thought Joaquin Phoenix was desperately annoying in this, but Patty oh, LuPone really? was, yeah, he was, oh, <laughs> stop your whining and your snuffling. Jesus Christ. I thought Patty LuPone was a fucking fantastic as his, as his, the elderly version of his mother. Um, that Parker Posey shows up as a love interest of sorts. And come oh. on, that scene is amazing. They yeah, yeah, really yeah. Really intense scene together, which is like, oh, lovely, fantastic, horrifying. Yeah. I, I, there, moment to moment, there are these incredible scenes. And then there's a reverie that comes about two hours into the movie. He wanders into the forest. That's where I started to think, hey, what time is it? And I looked at my watch, never gets on. And... I, I that's that's when I ordered a refill of the popcorn. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's I that's where the movie wanders for me, for lack of a better word. The whole movie is kind of wandering, but it lost my attention because I felt it it lost its focus. And getting to the nut of the relationship between the two of them, I use nut, you know, in the dual sense of that word because there's mm -hmm. a weird sexual anxiety that you know the mother tells the son basically, if you ever climax, you're going to die, and that's how your father died. Um, so there's that baggage too, but these are all, like you're saying, these are Freudian archetypes. These are Jewish archetypes. They are not specific or based in anything that is relatable, empathetic. It's just, you're supposed to presume that this is just the way it is. And let's have uh, a really wild flight of fancy for three hours talking about this relationship without actually earning it or proving it or making it convincing. I don't want to even say believable because there's nothing... That's well, really believable, and the movie's not trying to be believable, but it could be convincing in terms of the emotions that are going on. Yeah, well, agreed. And, you know, it's like, it's clever, very clever in places, but I wouldn't say yeah. it's ever particularly funny. Um, and, you know, and it's, it, it's depth is just, is sometimes drowned out by the shrieking and the violence. Uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, but again, I want to say I also liked uh, Nathan Lane and Amy Ryan as this kind of weird suburban couple that uh, hits yeah. both, both their car and take takes them in. It's, so it's not like this movie lacks value completely. I mean, it is it's a it's a piece of work to say the least. But I mean, it it, it is like definitely one of those like art house Klingons. <laughs> You know, I mean, it was advertised here at the Alamo Draft House like it was the next Jaws or something. But I was like, oh, 
no, no. Everyone's just going to be seeing Evil Dead this weekend. No one, no one's going right. to. This is not. It's, this it's, does not have broad appeal at all. No, it's a serious investment. And uh, let me ask you: with the Amy Ryan and the um, uh, Nathan Lane couple, um, because Ari Aster has described this movie as a Jewish Lord of the Rings, which is hilarious too to think of. But he he feels culturally that the film is very Jewish. Is are the Amy Ryan's uh, and the the Amy Ryan and uh, Nathan Lane couple? I just presume that is a Jewish version of what uh, a like a goyish household is. That maybe, maybe. Like, you know I, I mean, mean the thing a, is, here's the thing. The thing is, I knew Jewish households like that growing up. You know, he's a doctor. You know, you know, it's like you know, it's not necessarily you know. Getting Nathan Lane to play a goy is a kind of a stretch. No, I know, I know, I know, I know. But they're so they're so kind of rigid and like absolutely full of love and support and help. I'm just wondering if that is culturally yeah, Jewish people. Jewish people are nice too, Stephen. We're, we're, <laughs> no, 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 no. We're full of love and help. Do you think he is uh, seeing that family as being yet another type of Jewish family, or is he looking at it as this is what? Jewish people think of it as an ideal family when, in fact, there's all this turmoil underneath the surface. Hard to say. All families have turmoil. It's a good question. Um, you know, the, the thing is, no, no one ever mentions religion anywhere in the movie. There's yeah. no, there's, there's no like, both like, oh, I'm Jewish. Oi, I'm so Jewish. <laughs> you know, he's, he's, he's not like, he's not like going go to the bait. He's not microwaving like a frozen gefilte fish. You know what I mean? It's like, it's not. <laughs> So I don't know. It's hard. It's hard to say. It's a very Jew. I mean, it's it is the Jewiest movie uh, in in Jewtown. That's that's for sure. And you know your your mileage your mileage may vary. I, I was like, I just want to go home and watch the puffy shirt episode of Seinfeld again. Yeah. <laughs> Can I just say though? I think what I really loved about the movie is that it it more than most movies uh, about anxiety really made me feel. I I clearly you did not like Joaquin Phoenix in this movie. I really liked him. And what I felt for his character was real empathy. Like, it really got me in his headspace in a way that I found very compassionate. As despite all the, 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 the ridiculousness of it and the removed from reality thing, I really did feel, and I think this is to Ari Aster's credit as a director, he really knows how to get under your skin and unnerve you and make you feel helpless and make you feel trapped in this Kafkaesque kind of nightmare. I love feeling helpless and trapped in the movie. I mean, I'm already, I'm already in the movie theater. You know, it's like anyway. I, I don't know. I would have liked his, I would have liked his character to have a little more agency, maybe. You know. Well, I think maybe, and that's maybe not be a complete freaking moron. <laughs> that's, I was that's gonna it. say. I mean, that's the other thing. The thing that drives me crazy are protagonists who are completely passive. And if you have such passivity, I, I generally have no sympathy for you. In a weird way, I did in this film because I saw his character more as a very mentally ill person mm. and that helped me kind of relate to and then be compassionate for and feel empathy for his plight and the way that he was looking at the world which clearly is meant to be very subjective well you're a better man you're a better man than I am you're a better man than I am Stephen Garrett um, <laughs> I have a good mom who loves me it, it makes all the difference yeah well yeah, I did. I used to as well. Um, so that's <laughs> the truth. So I, I, I will say one more thing before we cut this off. This is not the Jewish Lord of the Rings. The Jewish Lord of the Rings <laughs> is the Ten Commandments. That's the Jewish Lord of the Rings. There will never Fair be enough. 
Or you, know, you can give it, well, why can't, yeah, it's the Ten Commandments. It, it, it hits all the marks. Hey, you let know. me ask you, here's a, here's a, here, a parting thought. Uh, Ari Aster, who you, you know, quite rightly brought up his other films, and he, he really is creating a new grammar and maybe expanding the definition of horror for modern times. And this, I think, is a contribution to that, despite it being very comedic in a way that, like, Rosemary's Baby is funny, but also horrifying. Do you think Ari Aster is helping to redefine or expand the idea of what horror is? Uh, well, first of all, I will say Rosemary's Baby is different from Bo is Afraid in the fact that it's like an entertaining movie to mainstream audiences still. <laughs> <laughs> to this day. To this day, it you know, um, I'm, I would say Midsummer definitely did that. But, you know, th this movie to me feels like an auteur um, who uh, no one can say no to. And, you know, that's whatever your genre, horror. Ouch. Ouch. Well, it's a, whatever your genre, horror, action, comedy, drama, whatever, when someone has a hit and then decides to make their art film masterpiece, this is this kind of movie is often the result. That's, that's kind of the way I, I look at it. You know, I'm going to let, we're going to let the people out there in book and film globe land decide um, and, and tap into their own ids and see what they think about Bo is Afraid. And on that note, I will, uh, I will nag you next week, Stephen. <laughs> Always my pleasure, never nag. All right, thanks, Stephen Garrett. Bo is Afraid is in theaters now. Enter at your own risk. I'd also like to thank Michael Washburn for talking to me about Woody Allen's new movie, Coup de Chance, and the Cannes Film Festival's decision to not include it in this year's lineup. A very strange choice on their part. And thanks to Sharon Vane for talking to me about the growing movement to defund public libraries among conservative uh, governors and legislators in the United States. Very bad idea. I hope that it doesn't get very far. I am Neil Pollock. I am the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and so much more. I am not afraid. Well, I'm a little afraid, uh, mostly of werewolves and uh, also occasionally thunderstorms, but that's really not your concern. What is your concern is listening to the show and reading the website, and I will talk to you soon. Audio Papa.
Original Production.